Good morning, church. My name is Robin Rosenquist. This morning, we'll be looking at the story of Cain and Abel from the book of Genesis. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles or Bible apps, you can get those out now, or you can follow along on the screens. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 9. Genesis 4, 1 through 9. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again. If you were not here earlier, uh, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I'm happy to uh, have you here this morning. Uh, Would you pray for me? I'm a little nervous because I'm preaching from uh, these flimsy things this morning. I think they call it paper. And uh, I'm going to try this. And I was practicing this morning. And I was a little bit nervous just handling this. So used to uh, using my trackpad on my computer here. All right. Um, We're going to start a new series in the book of Romans in a couple of weeks. But we're going to have a couple of one-off sermons before we get to that. And... uh, This passage that I'm going to teach from this morning, I have been thinking about this passage almost every day for a couple of months. And I've been thinking about this passage, not as a way to preach it, but just applying it to myself. So it's a a passage that just resonates with me. And uh, I think if I had to pick like top three passages that I would have to spend the rest of my life with in prison or something... And just, I would have these three passages. This would be one of them. This really speaks to me. It resonates with me and my personal wiring and problems and the uh, demons that plague me uh, personally. And so uh, there's sort of um, enthusiasm and personal connection that I bring with me this morning to this passage. And uh, it's also a passage that I think about probably, uh, one of the passages I think about the most If I'm interacting with somebody else. And uh, maybe not this passage specifically. But the topic that I think this passage addresses so well. That we're going to talk about today. Something that um, swirls around in my brain. As I'm listening uh, to some of you share with me. And it's sort of become a uh, primary grid. If you will. Through which I sort of view the world. And uh, it helps me categorize what I'm hearing. Uh, It's my personal uh, read of this passage that 
one of life's most basic problems. One of your most basic problems, if I can say it that way, is depicted in this story of Cain murdering his brother Abel. And the topic that I relate to, that I uh, you know, uh, think about when you are sharing with me or that I put on the world as I look at the world, is this topic of responsibility. What I see when I read this story is that uh, we have problems to be solved, but we're not very good at solving problems. We ch- make choices, but we don't like the consequences of choices that we make. And so we're in denial about the consequences of our choices. And we shun freedom by giving power to other people that is playing the blame or fault game. And then we play the victim card, abdicating responsibility. Did you see all that in the story when Robin was reading it for us? I do. Two points. Now, when Julie was preaching a few weeks ago, she noted that I like to make three points and she was going to outdo me. And she made four points. But what she didn't realize is the way the game is played with you all is you prefer less points, not more. And so I'm going to outdo her four points by having two points today. Where is Julie? Okay, two points. Brother's killer and brother's keeper. Okay? Here we go, turning these pages. Such manual labor. First, brother's killer. Now, this is sort of a murder mystery, and so we're going to gather some facts to this case. Verse 2, we read that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. Not bad. Um, Verse 3, there's a phrase, in the course of time. Some translations render it as in due time or in the end. Um, That's because what this is implying is that there is a deadline, And so there was sort of a rule that we don't know about. It doesn't specify here explicitly. But there was some rule or time set for when an offering was to be made to God by Cain and Abel. We don't know about that here. But it's uh, indicating some rules that Cain and Abel had to follow. Okay, we don't know what those are. Verse 5 says, For Cain and his offering, he had no regard That phrase, no regard, it just means to look at. It means God refused to look at Cain. He he didn't look towards Cain. He didn't look Cain's way. Thereby signifying rejection of Cain and his offering, we note. It's not just the offering, but it's both Cain and his offering. Okay? And then in verse 5, we read again that Cain, therefore, became very angry. And his face fell. Right? Dejection. Feelings of rejection. He's just feeling really down about himself here. And he's, he's raging inside. And then verse 6 and following, we read that God confronts Cain. I think that's pretty nice of God, if you ask me. God is doing the pursuing. He's playing the good shepherd role. And he's going after Cain. So he didn't look towards Cain and his offering at the time. But afterwards, God's sort of practicing really good bedside manners here. Um, And then verse 8, okay, and this is the key fact to this case, 
is Cain kills Abel. Right? And then verse 9, God is still pursuing Cain. And we see that God confronts Cain, follows up with him, checks in on him. Okay? Now, these facts to these, this case that uh, Robin referenced, it's not enough for me. I don't get the full sense of what's going on. And so I have to do a little um, uh, extra research. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this little verse is important because we understand that in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, the only way a person can have their sins forgiven is for there to be blood shed. Now, this is important because we see that Abel offered an animal, And shed the animal's blood. And we read that Cain, because he was a farmer, he didn't shed any blood. So perhaps an insight into why God had regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain. And I could only understand this to mean that both Cain and Abel must have been previously informed about this quote-unquote rule. That blood had to be shed. Right? Right? And then we have again in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. By faith, and I think that's the key word right there. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And so there's something about Abel's offering. Not just what he offered, but how he offered. Maybe the condition of his heart. The intent of his heart. But there's something about the way he made that offering. That was an acting out of the inward reality of faith in Abel. Right? I think we can sort of conclude that from this little piece of evidence here. Abel had faith. Faith that what? We don't know exactly what here yet, but we know that his faith allowed God to declare him righteous. Meaning that his offering somehow led to the forgiveness of his sins. Abel was a sinner just like Cain. But Abel's sins were forgiven by God. He was declared righteous, not by his actions, but by his faith. Right? And then, our last clue here, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so now we get a a little bit of a um, more insight into the heart of intent, right? Motives are important in a murder case. So his motive is not that Abel did wrong and he did right, but it's the other way around. That he, Cain, had done something wrong and he knew it. And Abel, who did something right, by his doing right, 
by contrast, exposed his own wrongdoing. And so he went out and he killed his brother Abel. So what do you think is going on here? What's, what's really the, the story underneath this story? It's not just about murder, or it wouldn't be relevant to us today. Here's what I think. I think Cain knew the right thing to do. Not just once, not just twice, but three times he rejected the right thing to do. When he was making the offering, when he was making the decision about what kind of offering he was to make, I think Cain decided, you know what? This is good enough. Who cares about what God said? I'm going to do this because this is more, I don't know, in this case, convenient for him. He was a farmer. He had grain. Why not offer that? Right? And then when sin was crouching at his door, when his face fell and his heart was raging with anger, and God lovingly came to him and said, Cain, Listen, brother, you, you're, the, you're the one who's doing something that's wrong. You're upset only at yourself. If you don't, if you don't do what's wrong, you're going to be happy. But you've done what's wrong. That's why you're upset right now. And if you do what's wrong, then sin is crouching. And it's waiting for you. It's waiting to devour you, to consume you. It's going to overtake you. And at that point, at that point, In that moment, he had the opportunity to repent and do what's right. He could have. But he rejects the right thing to do again. And then a third time, it says he speaks to his brother. This is premeditation here. This wasn't just second-degree manslaughter. This was first-degree murder. He, He spoke to his brother. Hey, Abel, come on out to the field. There's something I want to show you, something I want to tell you. Maybe he said, Abel, could you give me a hand in the field? It's just, I just have a lot of work. God's blessed me this harvest season, and uh, I need my brother's help. Maybe he tricked his brother to going out into the field. And he killed his brother, premeditated murder. At least three times, Cain had clear opportunity to do the right thing or to make things right. And we see by God's pursuit of him that God was always, the whole time, Open to repentance. God was being kind to him. God was building bridges. And Cain still chooses to do the wrong thing. And his anger leads him to murder. And then I think really it's the final sentence that was read for us that really helps to uh, nail uh, the, the, the story uh, Storyline down here. It ends with, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And I think what this is saying is that Cain was a person who perpetually shunned responsibility. He knew the right thing to do. He shunned it. He knew the right thing to do again to make things right. He shunned it. And at the end, when God finally says, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Who talks to God like that? Cain does. 
I want to read you something uh, from one of my favorite authors, a Christian uh, author. He wrote one of the best-selling books in the history of books uh, called A Road Less Traveled. And he tells a story on his chapter on responsibility. He says this. A career sergeant in the army stationed in Okinawa and in serious trouble because of his excessive drinking was referred for psychiatric evaluation. He denied that he was an alcoholic or even that his use of alcohol was a personal problem, saying, there is nothing to do in the evenings in Okinawa except to drink. Do you like to read, I asked. Oh yeah, I like to read, sure. Then why don't you read in the evening instead of drinking? Oh, it's too noisy to read in the barracks. Well then, why don't you go to the library? Um, The library is too far away. Is the library further away than the bar you go to? Well, I guess I'm not much of a reader. That's not where my interests lie. Do you like to fish? I then inquired. Sure, yeah, I love to fish. Why not go fishing instead of drinking? Oh, you know, because I have to work all day long. Well, can't you go fishing at night? No, there isn't any night fishing in Okinawa. But there is, I said. I know several organizations that fish at night here. Would you like me to put you in touch with them? Well, I guess I don't really like to fish. (laughs) What I hear you saying, I clarified, is that there are other things to do in Okinawa except to drink. But the thing you like to do most in Okinawa is to drink. Yeah, I guess so. But your drinking is getting you in trouble, so you're faced with a real problem, aren't you? This damn island would drive anyone to drink. I had a pastor friend of mine, and, uh, you know, he, he and I used to get together about once a week. And each week, he'd have the exact same conversation with me. Now looking back, I don't know why I met with him so often. Each week was about an hour and a half of eating and him complaining and moaning about his church. He apparently didn't like his people very much. And uh, he didn't like the pastors that he worked with. And uh, every week, all I heard was him groaning about this church. And uh, one day, he came to me and he said, Peter, I got, I got it. I think what I need to do is leave my church. But I want to start a church. And this church building he was eyeing to start the church in was just down the street. He says, I want to start a new church and I want you to leave your church and I want you to join me. We'll do this together. And I said, Tony, are you crazy? This is the fourth church you've left because those churches were terrible, according to your testimony. And now you want to start a fifth church for yourself? I think there's a pattern here. When something happens once, maybe it's their fault. When something happens twice, that means it's a pattern. And if it's a pattern, that means it's also about you. And I just flat out asked him, what responsibility do you take for your miserable life? He didn't start his church. He went and he moved overseas to attend grad school. And he eventually left the ministry. And I don't know what he's doing these days. I think... 
the greatest problem that you and I have is our inability to solve problems well. Because once you know how to solve problems, you no longer have problems. You have solutions. It is far easier for us to moan and groan, point fingers, find fault, so that we can abdicate responsibility for our lives and the choices that we choose to make. And then we can play the victim card. Here's one thing that's true about me. And I'm not sure exactly where this comes from. I see it in my family in general. But I find in myself a need to find fault. And I used to, this, is, this was my strategy. <clears throat> I find too much fault in other people. When something goes wrong, the first thing I want to know is who did it. And then I realized that wasn't helpful. So then I decided just trying to overown all the things that went wrong. My first reaction was, oh, it's my fault. But whether it's somebody else's fault or it's your fault, if you're playing the fault-finding game, you're still preventing yourself from solving the problem. When you're focused on solving the problem, being responsible and bearing the weight of your own life, growing up and saying, I own it, this is my life, these are my choices, and every moment I have the freedom to make certain choices. If you're doing that, you're focused on solving the problem and not on whose fault it is, whether it's theirs or yours. And I realize that if I'm finding fault and wanting to blame other things, society, God, friends, spouse, children, job, if I'm, if I'm needing to do that, then I, I'm, I'm abdicating power. I'm saying, I don't need freedom. I don't need power. It's, it's your freedom. I have no freedom. I'm just the pure victim of my life, of the choices that you have made over me. And eventually I find myself burning with anger and rage. And I just murder people all day long in my head. Confession, it's really easy for me as a leader to feel righteous. And it's really easy for me to blame the people I'm supposed to be leading for my inability to lead. You know, when I recently realized this was, um, you know, as our church is going through a lot of change, you know, there's been um, just word getting to me that we're not communicating enough. I'm not communicating enough. And I was really upset about this. And I was thinking, you know, I take a couple of hours each week to write this loop. Get yourself on the loop. Read the loop. I get a report every week that tells me that 40 emails, email servers are sending my loop into the spam folder. And then there's 12 people, 12 email servers that are rejecting, that are bouncing my emails. I'm thinking that's like 50, 60 people. And the open rate, the open rate for the email for the loop is only 60%. So there's 40 people 
who are not getting their loop. There's 12 people who are not getting the loop. And then there's 40% who are not even reading the loop. And I think, how is that my fault? And then I think, we had a members meeting. Only 40 people showed up. How is that my fault? And so on and so forth my brain goes. And then one day it dawned on me. The burden of communication is always on the one doing the communicating. And then I thought, well, who has the most opportunity and power and leverage of communication in this church? Who is it? It's me. I had murdered so many of you. (laughs) But it was really me. And so I've been working hard to come up with a communication plan. And I've been actually spending more time on the loop and writing better loops. And I thought, you know, I'm going to write these loops so good that people are going to forward it to each other. I don't even have to worry about who's on the list. This is going to be the hottest thing on the internet. And I feel so much happier owning that problem as my problem. It feels so freeing. I feel empowered. I feel free. I feel happy. Verse 7. If you don't do well, sin is waiting to devour you. Now, that communication analogy goes, story goes both ways. If you feel you're not being adequately communicated to, that's also your problem. And what are you going to do about it? How do you get yourself in the loop, literally and metaphorically? Because if you don't, sin is waiting to devour you, is what this story says. That we are called to own our own lives. And this is, this is really hard because this means we have to grow up. That means that our favorite excuses, our favorite card, that is the victim card. We pocket that. We don't play that anymore. What if I told you, okay, we're going to have a matrix Morpheus moment here. Okay, you're gonna take the, we're going to take the red pill together. The truth pill. What if I told you it's not his fault? What if I told you you have a choice? What if I told you you can do better and more? What if I told you happy is as happy does? How does that feel? What if you spent the whole week not blaming anyone, anything? I think you would have a better week, not a worse one. Eric Fromm, you guys know who he is? Very famous philosopher and psychologist. He wrote a um, landmark book called Escape from Freedom. And in this book, he says this, that freedom is painful Because our desire for a quote-unquote brother is greater than our desire for freedom. 
meaning that we would prefer to be enslaved to sin, to be devoured by sin, to be the actual victim than to be alone. And the most painful thing about freedom and owning up to our life and being responsible for ourselves is this feeling that now we are alone. That in our heart of hearts, we long for somebody to keep us, somebody to care about us. And if we can get it, even through the form of abuse, we will take that over being alone. And this is how he explains how a whole country fell under the spell of Nazism. Second, brother's keeper. Cain was a horrible, horrible big brother. This is the kind of big brother you don't want to have. He was an older brother who abdicated his responsibility for himself and for his role as an older brother. But I have some questions for you. Can you offer the perfect offering? Can you do well? Can you rule over sin? Can you keep your brother? Let me let you in on a little um, uh, sort of inside behind the curtains uh, philosophy. This is my sermon strategy. Okay, and um, if you look back, you'll see this in not just in this sermon, but in all the sermons I've preached here probably. But there's three basic rules that I follow when it comes to writing a sermon. The first is the law. In this passage that I'm preaching, what's the law? Meaning, what's the wisdom here? What are the principles? What are the truths? What are the shoulds? So in this passage, for example, the wisdom, the principle, the truths, and the shoulds are... We should own our lives. We should take responsibility rather than shunning responsibility. Right? Instead of playing the victim card and blaming everything and everyone else, we should recognize that we have choice. And we make choices and those choices have consequences. We grow up. We own up. Right? That's the wisdom here. But that wisdom by itself will kill us. That's, that's my working assumption. That if that wisdom is all we needed, Jesus didn't have to come and die for our sins. He didn't have to rise again from the dead. It's what I would call a synagogue sermon. Right? Full of wisdom and truth. Lots of shoulds. It's good stuff. I want to know. But it's not enough. And if it was, we don't need to be a Christian church. So I have a second uh, rule. The second is the law of sin and death. That if I keep that wisdom, it's going to kill me. And if I don't keep that wisdom, it's going to kill me. Right? Then my basic problem is I don't know how to break or keep the law without killing myself or those around me. That I do not know how to have a healthy relationship with the law. That I take the law and I put it on the throne and I worship this law, I live for this law and this law enslaves me. It doesn't set me free. 
It doesn't make me more who I am created to be. And therefore, it sucks the life out of me. And then I suck the life out of everybody else around me. You don't want to be around me when I'm breaking the law. But you certainly don't want to be around me when I'm keeping it either. And therefore, we have a third principle. It's Jesus. How did Jesus fulfill this law? Thereby setting me free from this law and from the law of sin and death. And so my job as a preacher is to show you that Jesus had to die and rise again from the dead for this wisdom or truth or principle, this law, to actually have any helpful meaning in our lives. Because apart from Jesus, we cannot be saved. Right? And so the point of today's message is not about you go out there and you be a great big brother. You keep your brothers. Amen? You go do that. And it's not about you go out there and you go be responsible. You take on your life. You own it. Understand that you make choices. You have freedom. Freedom. And 90% of you knew the reference to that movie. It's amazing. Is that the, is that the good news? Is that the gospel? Is that why you pay me the big bucks? So I can just tell you what you need to do? No, we already know this. That's not the problem. Our problem isn't a deficiency of information. What's our problem? Why can't we make this law work for us? Why can't we just have one therapy session a week? That's cheaper than tithing, I think. Takes a much less time and we'd be healthy and happy and owning our lives and we'd be saved. Yes? No. No. So what is, what's the takeaway here? It's about Jesus. He is the great big brother. This story is not about Cain and his failure. It's about Cain pointing to Jesus who is the big brother to come. Who is going to keep us who's going to be the lover of our souls, who's going to watch over us without sleeping or slumber, who will never leave us or forsake us, whose love cannot be separated from us by neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Nothing can separate us from this brother's love. And because we have this brother's presence in our life, it frees us. It allows us to be responsible for our lives because ultimately we are not. We have have the safety net of Jesus who died for us. We no longer have to die. And so we can take on our life without fear. Jesus, he did all that he can. He did everything. He took full responsibility for humanity's ills. And he absorbed all of our consequences into himself. And instead of killing others, he died. He was killed for our transgressions. 
It is for our sins that he was nailed to the cross. And it's for our life that he was raised from the dead. The story of Cain and Abel is the story about Jesus and us. It's not Abel's blood that's crying out from the ground. It's Jesus' blood. And it's not Cain that killed him. It's we that killed Jesus. Do you see the gospel? Do you hear it? And if he loves you, and he died for you, and he put his spirit in you, the same spirit that raised him from the dead is now in you, in me. We can take on the communication problems of this church, can't we? Because before, whether I failed or succeeded at that law, it was going to kill me. Now, whether I fail or succeed, I live. Because I don't live by the law. Jesus gives me life, not the law. So, we'll call that a sermon, and we'll have two application points here. One, actually this passage, ultimately, as far as the application is concerned, is about worship. This is primarily, application-wise, a failure of Cain to know how to properly worship his God, who was worthy of his worship. Right? What's the way to worship God? To come to church on Sunday and sing? No. It's about you living your life diligently. This week, here's my challenge, your application. Go out there and live life hard. Don't ever play the victim card. Just own as much as you can around you. Say, that's my problem. I have a choice in that. I will solve this problem. I won't care whose fault it is, whether it's yours or mine. I will say yes to it, and I will solve it. And if I can't, I will ask for help to the extent that is appropriate. Do that, and that will be worship. Everything that you do, do as unto the Lord. Do it in faith, trusting that whether you succeed or fail, that's not what's going to save you. Jesus has already done that. Now you're just having fun. You're just solving problems. My mother, who's um, like an Old Testament prophetess, when I was growing up, she refused to let me use the word hope. As a child, I was not allowed to use the word hope. Like I would say, oh, I hope I can wake up on time tomorrow. And she would say, hope to wake up? Set your alarm. If you can't hear the alarm, set two. If you don't have a second alarm clock, go out and buy one. If you don't have the money, ask me for money. If I say no, go make some money. Ask somebody for money. Do whatever it takes to wake up in the morning on time. And after you've done everything you could possibly do, then you don't need to hope. You'll have peace in your heart. Because you've done everything that you can. But until you've done everything that you can to own it, don't dare say hope. Hard mother. (laughs) I got a job in the sixth grade delivering papers, and I've never stopped working since. So as your way of... Worshiping God by your diligence and by you owning your life 
and exercising your freedom as a child of God, I want to challenge you to not use the word hope this week. Don't hope anything until you've done everything that you can. Then you'll have peace and rest. Okay? And then second application, as you're bearing the weight of your life and the consequences of your choices, invite Jesus into that dynamic. Just pray. God, Jesus, this is really hard. I'm feeling really lonely right now. I feel like nobody else cares. It's just me. Would you show me that you care? Would you show me that you're here with me? This isn't just my burden. I'm not alone with this task. I'm not just left holding the bag. But you are here. You are my keeper. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that um, you love us, that you have proven this love by your death on the cross. And uh, you express your commitment to us by giving us the deposit of your Holy Spirit. It's a taste of our uh, life together to come. This week, I pray for me and for this church that we would just experience the weight of our life and own that. That we would not play the fault or blame game. We would not play the victim card. We would not abdicate power and freedom and responsibility. Knowing, believing that you are bearing the weight of my life, our lives on your shoulders. That you ultimately care for us and you died for us. Help us to have a great week this week. Experience joy and happiness, peace and rest. And the hope that we have will not just be our uh, human word hope, but the biblical word hope. Assurance of things hoped for. That is faith. So we live this life. We live. We live unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.